offering our most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet, dear listeners. Let's welcome this new year, 2020. This is the first episode that we are having of the Gita series, the Trian Pilgrimage. In this new year, in this new decade, so I take this opportunity to extend my hearty greetings to each one of you, listeners. May this year mark a resolute step towards our destination, towards our goal, towards our beloved Swami. In this journey of sadhana that each one of us have undertaken, this is a series in which we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse. The whole idea behind any such endeavor is to take a serious look at our lives. and to ensure that each action that we perform each step that we take in this life is a step towards that goal which is worth reaching and it is not a step towards any other distraction in this life and that's the whole point we will be concluding the fourth chapter in this episode it's been a long journey this also happens to be the 64th episode so it's taken us quite a while and i think it is worthwhile that we've spent so much time in each one of these chapters as we always do we will have a summary of the fourth chapter next week and I, i probably will not start a summary this week we'll spend only the time that we have in the two last verses that are left in the fourth chapter but as always we'll begin with a summary of the shlokas that we covered the last time we covered three verses 38 39 and 40 of the fourth chapter last time the 38th verse was an interesting one where nyana or knowledge is spoken of as a purifier of the mind as well as what is attained after the mind is purified we had discussed the idea behind that it is a very important one which swami also reiterates it is that the enquiry into the self which itself must become an important part of our sadhana that we perform is what is being referred to here we discussed how swami had said after a certain point in our spiritual journey almost 70% of our sadhana must become this self enquiry in fact in this context i recall what one of our lecturers was narrating to us once he for many years had this sadhana of namaskarana and he had reached a state where he would probably be chanting swami's name constantly with every breath that he was taking and eventually he becomes a lecturer in swami's college after a few years and one day swami calls him for an interview and in the interview tells him that it is not enough that if you just do the sadhana you should find out the answer for the question who i am or who am i and he had no clue about what swami was saying and in fact he was thinking in his mind swami why are you asking me to think who you are i know that you are god and that is why i am here but after this interview concludes he comes out and one of the senior devotees who used to sit in the portico comes up to him and gives him a book on ramana maharishi and one of the chapters in that book happens to be who am i and after going through that chapter he then that he realizes that this is one of the concepts in spirituality this is a very essential sadhana that swami also speaks about and uh, swami was telling him that merely japa dhyana and such sadhana is not enough you have to also include self inquiry and as i said swami has said 70% of sadhana beyond a certain stage should be this self enquiry so along with sadhanas we do to purify the mind self enquiry is also to be introduced as a means of purifying this mind because as krishna says in verse number 38 nahi nyanen sadrisham pavitram hi vidyate there is no purifier 
equivalent to jnana in this world and once the mind is prepared through yoga jnana appears there with time automatically there is nothing much to be done if this purification process has been set into motion the mind eventually gets purified and once went through karma yoga the mind is purified jnana automatically begins to surface in the mind each of these verses have a phrase uh, which as i mentioned swami says are the two banks of the river of life they must guide our spiritual journey and our life itself in fact i'll probably read out the quote from swami's discourse which i promised last time i will where swami speaks about these two verses and this is what swami says i quote the bhagavad gita has laid down two banks to channel its message without these banks the river of life will be subject to many hazards and difficulties the two banks consist of two eight syllable mantras or ashtakshari mantras one is shraddhavan labhate gnanam the man of earnest faith acquires supreme wisdom the other ashtakshari mantra is samshayatma vinashyati the one filled with doubts perishes when life flows between these two regulating principles it will be blessed with peace and happiness it is only when man is guarded on either side by shraddha which is earnest faith and nissamshaya freedom from doubt will man be able to reach the goal of life end of quote this is a passage from swami's discourse that he delivered on 26th of may 1990 during the summer course where swami clearly says the importance of these two verses that we went through 39th and the 40th verse when we were discussing about the 39th verse we also discussed in detail about this idea of shraddha or faith as to faith in what and we explained how it is faith in the truth and when we say it is faith in the truth where do we get this truth from or at least right now we get it from a guru we get it from the shastras so shraddha or faith is faith in the guru faith in the shastras and faith in one's own self that i can attain this truth but this faith alone is not enough is what we had seen just claiming i have faith or i have belief in swami is not going to be enough one has to commit to that faith or commit to that belief the 39 shloka swami mentions just that krishna mentions just that he says one must also be a tatparaha a person who is committed to what one has faith in one must be prepared to modify one's life according to the belief that one claims and for that it is possible only when one has control over the senses again a point that repeatedly keeps coming in the bhagavad gita i think that is why the study of the bhagavad gita is so very important in the pursuit of the esoteric in the pursuit of the supernatural of the supreme of the whatever aparavidya we often forget the importance that there is in controlling the mind controlling the body controlling the senses and we can see periodically how the bhagavad gita reiterates the importance of these traits so in that 39th verse krishna says that you know you should have shraddha shraddha alone is not enough you should be a tatpara which means having had faith you should be able to commit your life to that and that is possible only when you have 
complete control over your senses. So there he says, speaks of the importance of control over senses, a point which will again be reiterated in the shlokas that we are going to be covering today too. So when one has all these three qualities, Shraddha, Commitment and Control of the Senses, one attains Jnana and along with it, Krishna says, Supreme Peace too will be attained instantly. You know, one does not have to again labor for that or again try for that or again do something else for that. It comes automatically when Jnana is attained. Swami in fact explains this in these few lines in the Gita Vaini. I thought probably I'll read that out too. Sami says, and I quote, Faith is only the first step. You must also yearn to imbibe the teachings I am imparting. This is necessary. Along with these, you must also be vigilant. Don't yield to sloth. Again, you may fall into company that is not congenial or encouraging. To escape the evil influence of such company and to strengthen your mind, to avoid it altogether, mastery over the senses is required. End of quote. This is what Swami says about that 39th verse in the Gita Vaini. And some of these points we will be discussing again because Krishna is going to repeat some of these things. The 40th verse is a verse where Krishna speaks about doubt being one of the greatest problems for a sadhaka. When one has ignorance and also lacks faith and is also filled with doubts, he is only fast-pacing towards ruin. It is not a problem to be ignorant. I think we discussed that last time. Agnya is the word Krishna uses. Being ignorant is not a sin, is not a big problem because we all are ignorant. And because we are ignorant is why we are trying to perform sadhana and we are trying to gain that knowledge. So being ignorant itself by itself is not a problem. But we must have the earnestness to remove that ignorance. We must have that push to take it upon ourselves to get rid of this ignorance and attain jnana. So to have the doubt is not a problem, but to sustain the doubt and probably make no efforts to get rid of that doubt is the real problem. In fact, uh, samshaya or doubt is something that is going to repeat in the next shloka that we are going to go through also. We will discuss about that because we didn't have much time to discuss about it last time. It is a very important theme. The very fact that Krishna speaks of this in the last three verses of the fourth chapter means that it is important. As we are going to see, the way Krishna concludes this chapter also has the word samshaya in it and that is why it needs our special attention. So these are the three verses that we covered last time. We will probably go to the last or second last verse of the fourth chapter. This is verse number 41. We will listen to it in the voice of Brother Sham, who has very beautifully and clearly rendered it for us. I will give you a very brief meaning of that and then we will discuss in detail what Krishna is saying in this particular verse. Yoga Sanyasta Karmanam Jnana Sanchinna Samshayam Atma Vantanna Karmani O Dhananjaya, actions do not bind one who has renounced actions through yoga, whose doubt has been fully dispelled by knowledge, and who is a master of his own self. 
So this shloka and the next one is pretty much a summary of what Krishna has been explaining so far in this chapter. In this verse, Krishna summarizes what he had said in three points or three qualities which are essential. And if it has to be put very crisply, he says karma performed in a certain way, a certain effect brought about in the mind by jnana or wisdom and a certain physical personality. I know that is very, very vague, but when we go through the phrases that Krishna uses, it will become clearer. But before that, he says, Dhananjaya, O Arjuna, na karmani nibadnanti. Karmas do not bind a certain kind of a person. So that is the subject here. That is the subject for a good part of the fourth chapter too, isn't it? Who is not bound by karma? That was also a topic or subject of study even in parts of the third chapter. So we are talking about such a person who performs actions in a non-binding fashion. In the 16th verse of this very chapter, Krishna had started speaking about the concepts of karma and akarma. And uh, from somewhere in the 18th verse, he speaks about how a jnani performs his actions. So Krishna summarizes that here by saying that such a person, O Dhananjaya, is not bound by actions. And what kind of a person? A person with these three qualifications. Yoga sanyasta karmanam, jnana samchinna samshayam, and thirdly, atmavantam. So three phrases or three qualities Krishna explains here. Yoga sanyasta karmanam, jnana samchinna samshayam, and atmavantam. What is Yoga Sanyasta Karmanam? Putting it plainly, it means one who has come to renounce karmas through yoga. Essentially what Krishna has been trying to teach Arjuna and of course through Arjuna to all of us. Arjuna wanted to leave everything and run away. He thought that that is the best option lying in front of him. But Krishna told him why that is a bad idea from all points of view, right? from the point of view of what is expected of him in society. In the beginning of the second chapter, Krishna had said that you are saying and wanting to do that is anaryajushtam, aswargyam and akirtikaram. It is not cultured behavior. It is not going to take you to heaven and it will also spoil your reputation here. So he said that from all these points of view, what you are trying to do is wrong. At the same time, he said this will not lead you to being freed from karma too. If you are talking of it from the point of view of the spiritual journey, even then this is not right. You are only running away from this one. So it is not going to help you even from the point of view of mumukshatvam or yearning and seeking liberation. Having said all that, he teaches then Arjuna karma yoga and says, through this yoga you will attain jnana and when you perform actions with that jnana, it becomes Inaction in action, a karma in karma. So, the first quality Krishna mentions in summary is one who has given up karma through yoga. Karma sannyasa is what Arjuna wanted to do. That's why he says, Yoga sannyasta karmanam. Yes, you become a sannyasi, but you become sannyasi not by wearing an ochre robe, going away to the forest, running away from your responsibilities, but you become a sannyasi by acquiring yoga and giving up karma through that yoga. 
the next quality that krishna speaks about is jnana sanchinna samshayam samshayam as i just mentioned is doubt that's what krishna spoke about in the previous verse he is speaking about it in this verse and he is going to mention it even in the next verse krishna had said that one with doubt perishes and doesn't find happiness in this world and the next and when we spoke about shraddha or faith as being threefold we said faith in truth being spoken of by the shastras which is nothing but faith in the scriptures so faith in guru faith in the shastras and faith in oneself to achieve it similarly when we talk about samshaya or doubt that also can be said to be threefold doubt in the scriptures doubt in the guru and self doubt all three are equally dangerous when krishna mentioned in the previous verse he said samshayatma vinashyati you could say that he is talking about somebody who is filled with doubts having doubts itself is not wrong as we will discuss today because we all have doubts right and doubt is a characteristic of agnana and as long as we have agnana we will have doubts but becoming a samshayatma becoming so trapped in those doubts is the most dangerous thing and not making any efforts to resolve those doubts is the most dangerous thing so doubt can be threefold doubt in the scriptures doubt in the guru and doubt in oneself and all three are equally dangerous when we speak about ignorance agnya ashraddha or lack of faith and samshaya or doubt all three are related and that is why krishna mentioned all three of them together in the previous verse doubt is can be defined as lack of certainty when i am uncertain about something i am doubtful about it when it is not obvious to me when things are not very clear to me when probably i do not have all the data necessary to be certain i can be said to be in doubt let's say if someone asks me if i take you know pointing to one of the pathways inside the ashram or one of the roads and says that if i take this road and go straight will i reach the ganesh gate somebody comes and asks me this question i will be able to say yes or no with complete certainty because i have full knowledge about that particular pathway in the ashram i must have traveled many times in it and i'm pretty much aware about all the roads and pathways inside the ashram now if that same person comes and asks me if i go to the bus stand right now will i get a bus to bangalore my answer to that will be i am not too sure or i i doubt if you'll get a bus i'm not very sure i mean the last bus i've taken is around 5 o'clock so right now i don't know if there's a bus because i do not have complete knowledge about what that person is asking i do not have all the data and so i am not certain about what i'm seeing talking about doubt one of the classic examples of half knowledge leading to doubt or lack of complete data leading to doubt that the upanishads gives us is that of a rope in the dark we've spoken about it many times in the series too and all other programs it's such a very clear example for what we are talking about that is why we go back to this it is a very profound at the same time a very simple and relatable example and that's why vedanta gives it that's why gurus and scholars have always gone back to this example and that is why even those who are not scholars like me also go back to this example because it's very easy to explain with this simple example the example of course as you all know is there is a rope that is lying in the dark 
but it is not dark. To be more accurate, it is lying in a twilight. Because if it is completely dark, you would not be able to see the rope too. And in that half light and half brightness, I am not sure what is that thing, whether it is a rope or it is a snake. Because there is little light, you see that there is something there which looks like a snake, which looks like a rope. But because there is half darkness, you are not able to be sure and hence you have doubts. Similarly, if we are completely ignorant, then we will have no doubts. Right? Something which most of our teachers would tell us at the end of a lesson. After she or he finishes a the lesson, they will ask, so do you have any doubts? And when nobody raises their hand, the teacher would always say that either you have completely understood what I've taught you or you have no idea of what I've taught you. And that's when you will never have doubts. So if we are completely ignorant, there will be no doubts. If we are partially ignorant and partially knowledgeable, and that is when doubts will come. Going back to this analogy of the rope in the darkness, let us say that you're standing there, there is this rope in the darkness, you're not sure whether it's a snake or a rope, and suddenly there's a stroke of lightning. And for a moment, you see the thing that is lying there in the darkness and you are able to clearly see that it is a rope. Right? We all have been in a situation where there's a sudden lightning, the whole place becomes like daylight for a brief few seconds or much lesser than few seconds, and then you, you're able to see everything clearly. So in that light, you've seen that it is only a rope. And then it again goes back to being half dark and half lit. But now you will have no doubt because you have knowledge about it. You have seen the truth. You have seen the rope there. You have seen that it is not a snake. right? So doubts will completely be removed only when truth is seen or truth is experienced by oneself. And that is why Krishna says, Jnana samchinna samshayam, a person in whom all doubts have been cut to pieces by jnana. The ultimate closure for all doubts comes only when there is knowledge. Till that point, we need shraddha or faith. We need to depend upon the scriptures. We need to depend upon the words of a jnani, the words of a guru. When I have the experience of what Krishna has been describing all through the second chapter, especially the Sankhya Yoga, of seeing all forms as ephemeral and the Atma alone as eternal or something that Krishna mentioned a couple of verses back, of seeing all beings in yourself and all in God. Let us say that for once we have that experience, we see it really like that, then I will not have any problem in seeing the reality behind this message of Advaita. Because I would have experienced it myself. I have seen the rope myself. I have seen that the world is ephemeral. I have seen that this Atma is the truth. When that happens, I will have no doubts that the Upanishads are telling the truth. Till then, it will be like, are you sure that the scriptures are right? Are you sure that everything is one? You read it, you have faith, you trust the Guru. You, the Guru tells that there is only one reality and that is the Atman, that is your true self. You want to believe the Guru, but then you're not sure whether to accept it or not. Another classic example I can think of is you know, in many buildings, they have this practice of putting a small statue of a, a bird of prey, like say an owl. I think some of the buildings, even the ashram also used to have uh, those structures. If you look at it in the night, you know, in, in partial uh, darkness, as we've been talking about, 
you'll think that it's a real bird sitting there. And let's say one of your friends who has seen it in daylight comes and tells you, you know, no, no, it's only a statue. It's not a real bird. But then you'll accept it because he has a person who probably has seen it in daylight and you will not look at that statue as a real bird. But every now and then you might look at it and say that, but it looks so real, but it looks like it's something is sitting there. Right? So there will always be that doubt till I see it for myself. Similarly, now we don't know that this world is an illusion. We may believe the words of the master. We might believe Swami's words and say that Swami says so, it must be so. We are not able to see that this is a waking dream. When you're asleep, when you're in a dream, the dream appears real. So the jnanis in the scriptures say that this is all unreal and only the self is real. So we believe it, but as we go through life, when we have experiences where we feel pain, when we are jubilant, when we are struck with disaster, again the doubt comes whether all of this is true or not. But the beauty of doubt is every doubt comes with a choice to go towards faith or not. So having doubt is an expression of ignorance and as long as there is Ajnana in each one of us, and I believe all of us do have Ajnana, right? Due respects to any Jnanis who are there in the listeners, but I think most of us are Ajnanis and as long as we are Ajnanis, we are not spared of this doubt. But every time there is a doubt, every time life throws a challenge at us and we start doubting the words of the Master, we have a choice. Whom do we choose to trust? Whose words we are ready to place our faith on. That choice is always with us. For example, Swami tells me, simple living and high thinking is the best way to lead a happy life. Or Swami says, less luggage, more comfort. So here is Swami who is telling me that you should lead a simple life. You should have less attachments, less possessions. On the other hand, there are these advertisements. You know, One of the advertisements which I keep hearing quite often says, people tell us that moderation is good. But where is fun in moderation? There is no fun in moderation. There's an advertisement which I've happened to hear a few times. And then they show expensive houses and expensive furniture and cars and they tell you that if you have all of this, then you will be happy. So this creates a doubt in the mind. But I always have a choice whom to trust. On one hand is Swami who is selfless, who gains nothing by the way I live my life, be it simple or ostentatious. On the other hand are all these commercials and they are going to make money when I choose to believe them. When they are showing me a lavish lifestyle and when they tell me that this is how you can be happy and if I believe them and if I commit my life to them, right? That's what Shraddha and Tatparaha. You have faith in what they say and then you commit your life to them. They are going to gain from it. So will we place our faith on somebody who gains by us having faith in them? Or will we place our faith in somebody who probably has nothing to gain from whether we follow that person's words or not? That choice is there with each one of us. So that choice is always attached to doubt. No doubt we have doubt, but whenever we have doubt, that choice as to whose words we have to trust, the direction we choose to take is there with us. That choice is with us and that decides if we are moving towards clarity or we are moving towards more delusion, whether we are moving towards freedom or we are moving towards bondage. But to make that choice, to decide that I am going to believe what Swami says, that alone is not enough, right? As we saw, 
Shraddha alone is not enough. You need to be a tatparaha. You need to commit your life to that. And tatparaha alone is not enough. You need something more. I might want to be a good person, but I should also be able to be a good person. One fine day I might get up and say, I want to scale Mount Everest. But that desire alone is not enough. I need to have the fitness also to achieve it. Similarly, as we said, Shraddha alone is not important. We must also be able to act according to that. And for that, I need to have mastery over myself. I must have a certain control over my body and senses and to a certain extent control over my mind too. So that is the next quality Krishna speaks about. He says the person must be an Atmavanta, a person who has mastery over oneself. If I do not have mastery over myself, there is no point in making the choice at all, isn't it? I might choose, but if I do not have the authority to act upon the choice, then what is the point in making the choice? As Krishna had said, Shraddhavan, Tatparaha, you should be able to reflect that faith in your actions and that is possible only when you have self-mastery or mastery over your senses. We might wonder sometimes, you know, now Arjuna is learning all this from Krishna and some would often say that Arjuna was 80 years odd when this entire battle was happening. So what was Arjuna doing all this while? Has he wasted all his life? At the age of 80, he's getting to know all of this. Not really. He was preparing for this moment through lifelong self-mastery. And that is what has brought him to this stage. Krishna addresses Arjuna in this verse as Dhananjaya. One of the meanings of that name is one who has conquered riches. And what are those riches that are conquered when we are talking about Arjuna? As Swami had explained, the riches contained in the treasure chest of Shraddha, the Shat Sampattis, are the true wealth, Shama, Dama, Uparati, Titiksha, Samadhana and Shraddha. Those are the Shat Sampattis, right? They are the true wealth, Swami would call them as. And all of these are different aspects or different ways of explaining self-control. So Arjuna is always spoken of as someone who had incredible mastery over his body and mind. So that sadhana, that little disciplines that we follow in our everyday life to attain the self-mastery is a very important thing. As I said in the summary, oftentimes in the spiritual path, we tend to overlook the importance of these simple disciplines in life. These simple disciplines only enable us to follow the spiritual choices that we will eventually make. When we have a doubt, when we choose to resolve the doubt, when we choose to place our faith on God and after placing faith on the Guru or on Swami's words, when we want to commit our life to that, we will be able to do that only when we have this mastery over ourselves. So the one who is Yoga Sanyasta Karmanam, one who has given up all karma through the process of karma yoga. Jnana Sanchinna Samshayam, who has destroyed the doubt through Jnana and who is an Atmavantam, one who is having mastery over oneself. Na Karmani Nimadnanti. Such a person is not bound by karma. So this was the Penultimate verse of the fourth chapter, as I said, a lot of these concepts are repetition of what Krishna has been saying in the fourth chapter because this is a summary of what he has been telling. 
So let us now go to the last verse of the fourth chapter, the forty-second verse. We we'll listen to it. I'll give you the brief meaning, and then we will discuss in detail. Tasma dagnana sambhutam hrstham yana sinatmana chitvainam shamsayam yogam. Therefore, O Sion of Bharata dynasty, take recourse to yoga and rise up, cutting asunder with the sword of knowledge this doubt of your own in the mind, arising from ignorance. So that is the forty-second verse. So Krishna concludes this chapter with a call for action. He did the same in the at the end of the third chapter too, and we can make out that the call for action that Krishna is putting forth in front of Arjuna is progressively becoming an internal battle and internal achievement. In the second and third chapter, Krishna was every now and then reminding Arjuna to fight. Right, as we said, the whole idea is so that Arjuna picks up his Gandiva and takes part in the battle. So many times we saw that. Krishna would say that therefore Arjuna, you should get up and fight. Therefore Arjuna, pick up the Gandiva. That was in the second and third chapter. But in the end of the third chapter, Krishna told Arjuna to fight and defeat the enemy of desire. Here, in this case, Krishna asks Arjuna to defeat doubt, which is also an internal enemy. As I was saying for the previous shloka, we must be proactive to remove the doubt. Having the doubt is not the problem. The necessary action to remove the doubt, that prerogative, should be ours. Faith and trust are only valid till a certain point. After that, there should be personal experience, and as we saw, it is only through that nyana that doubt can be completely removed, right? And that is what makes doubt an enemy who cannot be killed by anyone outside. When we say that nyana alone can Completely remove this doubt. No amount of explaining from outside, no amount of reading from scriptures, no amount of listening to discourses will completely remove this doubt. There must be vision of the truth, and that alone can remove this doubt. And that makes this doubt an internal enemy, which can be slain only by the individual and not by anybody else. Again, Krishna uses an analogy of enemies and swords and warfare. Because Arjuna can relate to it being a kshatriya, he says tasmat. Therefore, agnana sambhutam, born out of ignorance, hritstatam, rooted in the heart or in the mind, yenam samshayam. This doubt, the doubt or samshaya which Krishna says causes ruin, is born out of ignorance and is not outside. But rooted in one's own mind, right? That is the most important point that Krishna makes here. If you look at the mind, the mind's mandate is quite contrary to the knowledge that we are trying to establish in the mind, right? We are not only trying to understand the knowledge; we are not only trying to familiarize ourselves with the truth. We are trying to establish the truth in the mind. But what the mind is mandated to do is quite contrary to this truth that we are trying to establish in it. The mind always operates through multiplicity. Something is good, something is bad, something is likable, something is not. 
So when you give it the truth that there is nothing like two, everything is one, there is no duality, there is no multiplicity, the mind automatically doubts it. And that doubt is essentially the nature of the mind which is born out of this maya, born out of this ignorance. So what must be done about it? Jnana Asina, the sword of knowledge, Atmanaha, of the self, Chitva, having cut, Yogam Atishta Uttishta Bharata. Krishna says, Yogam Atishta Uttishta Bharata. Take refuge in yoga and arise, O Arjuna. Krishna says, Take the sword of Jnana and vanquish this doubt. When you take to battle, you need some direction or some purpose to fight towards. Something that makes you decide what has to be done at each situation. Krishna says, take refuge or recourse in Karma Yoga. Let that be your guide. And when we summarize Karma Yoga, we spoke about all the things that one has to keep in mind when one wants to become a Karma Yogi, one wants to live life like a Karma Yogi. When you go for a battle, you always have a mandate. You always have a instruction from either the general of the army or the king himself. He says, defend the northern frontier or go and conquer this island or ensure that this particular king is freed from the enemy's clutches. You're given a mandate towards which you, based on which you make your decisions. So here Krishna is saying, base or take recourse in karma yoga that I've taught you. And what is this source of jnana? Jnana Asina. What is that sword of Jnana? It sounds very fascinating and romantic when you say that take the sword of Jnana and kill the doubt. But what does that really mean? Practically, how do we practice that? Adi Shankara in his commentary explains this very, very beautifully that Jnana Asina or the sword of Jnana is nothing but clear vision that comes from discrimination between the Atma and the Anatma the real and the unreal. Some would often say this, the buddhi or the discriminative mind is the representation of the atma in the conscious mind of the individual. Some would say the buddhi is literally an amsha of the atma. It has the same qualities of the atma and it is closest to the atma. These are all ways in which Sami would describe this buddhi. For all practical purposes, we can say that the sword of jnana is nothing but the sword of buddhi itself. In its purest form, this buddhi performs atma-anatma-viveka, the distinction or the discrimination between what is real and what is unreal. Right? The discrimination between the eternal self and this maya world is probably the purest or the highest form of this discrimination of the buddhi. But in the everyday world, the same buddhi becomes the discrimination between shreyas and prayas that we have spoken about. When we study this discrimination between shreyas and prayas, that is also a form of discrimination between the eternal and the ephemeral. Just to refresh our memory about what is shreyas and prayas, just in case somebody is lost about that, these are again two choices that Krishna speaks about in the Bhagavad Gita and one of the verses that we have come across. Prayas is the most pleasant option or the pleasant choice that lies before us which need not necessarily be the right choice. Shreyas is the choice which probably might lead to an immediate loss but is something that will give you a more true reward. Right? 
So to put it simply, Shreyas is the right thing to do and Prayas is the pleasant thing to do, which may or may not be right. So in everyday life, the Atma Anatma Viveka or Atma Anatma Vichara, the constant contemplation of what is real, what is unreal or Nitya Anitya Vichara, the other way of looking at it, other way of expressing it, this becomes the Shreyas Prayas Viveka or Shreyas Prayas discrimination that the mind performs. Because in everyday life, if you look at it, we don't think constantly about what is eternal. Yes, for a very reflective manana, it is good. We are thinking and you know we are thinking about the body, we are thinking about all the implements that we live with and we think that all of this is not real. So it is good for contemplation, but in everyday life, I don't think we constantly go through this thinking that, oh, this is all eternal and this is all uh, ephemeral. But at least normal discrimination in between Immediate short-lived pressure and the long-term benefit is something that we are constantly doing, isn't it? That is a dilemma which constantly presents itself in front of us. If I do this, this is going to make me rich right away. But if I stick to this, this is a good thing that I am doing. It might not give me reward right away, but it will eventually give me what is right. So what do the scriptures do? Depending on the mind of the aspirant, some people need a reward, right? So it speaks about swarga, it speaks about heaven, it speaks about rewards that will come after your life or in the next lifetime, right? So something which makes you stick to the right path, looking at it as something which is a more eternal benefit than going to prayers or the immediate benefit bestowing, which is pleasant, which will give you a reward right away, but it is not something that is right. And when you perform something which is not right, it has a long-term negative effect on your mind. So the Atma Anatma Viveka becomes the Shreyas Prayas Viveka in everyday life. And when this simple discrimination between what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, between the immediate benefit and the long-term benefit is made, firstly, it purifies the mind. right? And that is one of the most important things that we are talking about. And every time we make a choice, and every time we act upon the choice that we have taken, it adds to the sanskara of the mind. And either it becomes a sanskara and purifies the mind, or it becomes a vasana and it stains the mind. Right? We have spoken about this before also. So this is what happens when we make a choice and we choose to follow that. And as Krishna explained in the second chapter, Every time a desire that comes in the form of Raga and Dvesha is resisted, one grows in self-control. One becomes more and more an Atmavanta. So though the idea of good and bad, right and wrong, good karma, bad karma, all dissolves when we speak about the Atmic level and we are speaking about the Jnana of Advaita, all of this discrimination also contributes to that jnana being discovered within. So when Krishna tells Arjuna, here in this particular verse, jnana asina atmanaha chitva yenam samshayam With your sword of knowledge, destroy these doubts of yours. It need not necessarily mean the supreme jnana that he is talking about as the sword. Because Arjuna himself hasn't achieved it as yet. And if you tell Arjuna that, you know, if you have doubts, it's a very dangerous thing. You have to get rid of doubts. And Arjuna asks, how do I get rid of doubts? So you should have jnana for that. So you're saying to receive jnana, you should not have doubts. To get rid of doubt, you should have jnana. 
So it's a catch-22 situation. So this jnana asina must literally mean what is something already in your possession. You're telling Arjuna to be a warrior and fight. He should have the weapon in his hand and that weapon in his hand, the jnana asina is not the jnana which is going to be eventually achieved but the discrimination which he already has. right? So you and I also have not achieved it yet but that discrimination all of us have. Something, a point which Swami constantly reiterates that there is no person who does not know what is right and wrong. If somebody says, I don't know what is right and wrong, then they are only speaking untruth. Swami says, each one of us certainly know what is right. We all know what is wrong. It is only about our commitment to what is right and what is wrong that makes us who we are. Right? So that discrimination is with each one of us and that becomes the sword of jnana which is used to destroy this doubt which is there in the mind. So this entire dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna is that discrimination being done aloud by Krishna for Arjuna. And because it is being done by Krishna for Arjuna, we are also looking at this dialogue and we are using it to a certain extent to allay our doubts. But unless this dialogue happens inside us, the dilemma is not going to be completely removed. Every time there is a doubt, every time there is a dilemma between should I do this, should I not do this, you know, if I do this, I'm, I'll get out of this problem, it's okay, somebody is going to be harmed, that's alright, I will be safe. And the choice of no, this is the right thing to do. Whenever there is the dilemma, this dialogue which is happening outside, where Krishna is speaking to Arjuna, this dialogue should happen inside the mind. And this is one of the beautiful imagery that we spoke about of Krishna being the charioteer. You have the Katopanishad's analogy or allegory of the various aspects of the mind being the chariot, the horses being the senses, the reins being manas, the buddhi being the charioteer and the atma being the traveler in the chariot. Right? We had spoken about that analogy the Katopanishad gives and here is a similar chariot situation but here what happens? Krishna is the charioteer and one of the explanations or a beautiful meaning of that is the words of the Guru should become the charioteer. The words of the Guru should become the buddhi. Right? That is what it means by saying that Krishna became the charioteer of Arjuna. So we are now listening to the words of Krishna. We are now reading the words of Krishna. We are listening to Swami's discourses. We are reading Swami's words. Truly we become spiritual aspirants when we make these words, these messages of Swami, of Krishna, of the Guru become the charioteer which means they should become the buddhi aspect of our mind and that is why that constant internal dialogue the replication of this samvada between Krishna and Arjuna should be replicated in the mind and that is what will lead to the doubts being gotten rid of but Krishna makes it very clear in the shloka and also the previous one that the initiative must come from the individual. No one can discriminate for you. No one can remove your doubts. You have to do it yourself. And that is why the word Atmana is used of one's own self. You find that word being used in this particular shloka. The usage of this word in this shloka is explained in multiple ways. Jnana Asina Atmanaha. If you look at it that way, it means you have to use your own sword of jnana. 
as we just discussed it should be your discrimination that discrimination can be empowered by the company that you keep by the books that you read by the proximity with the guru but the buddhi is your own nobody is going to do that for you so you have to use your own sword of the buddhi jnana asin atmanaha is one of the ways of looking at it the other way of looking at that sentence is atmanaha yenam samshayam that means this doubt that is your own the doubt doesn't come from outside the doubt arises from within this samshaya or doubt which krishna is referring to is not like the doubt about a rope or a snake if it is such a doubt then someone shining light outside can help you resolve that doubt here we are talking about doubt regarding one's own self i don't know who i am so this is an internal doubt related to one's own self and this doubt arises from the darkness which is within the darkness of ignorance so no one can switch on a light inside you that would have been wonderful if some had walked into our life and switched on the lights within and then at that very moment we would have got enlightened right but that enlightenment cannot be brought in by anyone including the lord himself it is not the question of whether it is possible for god or not it is not part of how the things work right because if it was part of the way things work probably krishna would have just tapped arjuna's head and said that no may you be enlightened now let's fight the battle it doesn't happen like that the words of the master only empower you the enlightenment must come from within right so no one can switch on the light inside us we will have to do it for our own selves and that is why krishna says yogam atishta uttishta bharata a beautiful way of putting it he says taking the support of yoga here in this context it is karma yoga he says taking support of yoga o arjuna stand up arise meaning get up and act you must do it i cannot do it for you yes there is darkness yes there is doubt but you also have the sword of discrimination with you krishna calls arjuna in a couple of verses that we have gone through as parantapa the destroyer of enemies arjuna would have never thought you know in all the battles that he has fought oh there are so many enemies here and they are all such great warriors i don't know how to fight in fact even in this battle he was not scared of bhishma he was not scared of drona in fact he was kind of sure of defeating them and that is why he was disturbed and that is why he was worried so arjuna never feared enemies as long as he had his gandiva in his hand similarly krishna is saying so what if there is agnana so what if that agnana causes doubt you are armed with this jnana asina the sword of jnana the sword of atma anatma viveka and a warrior is never afraid of enemies as long as he has the strength and he has his sword or his weapon in his hand right so that is how this chapter ends as i said the third chapter ended with krishna asking arjuna to defeat the inner enemies of desire right krishna had spoken about raga and dvesha how they cloud our clarity the most important central question that arjuna asked at that point was you know i know what is right i know what is wrong i want to do it but i'm not able to do it what is stopping me from within and then he says that each one has a prakriti each one has a nature and in that context he had said that this inner nature of yours literally surfaces in the conscious mind as likes and dislikes and one of the ways to battle against that 
is to stick to your dharma. At every point, ask yourself, what is it that you're supposed to do? And then you resist the pulls of Raga and Dvesha. So Krishna concludes that discourse or that portion of the discourse by telling Arjuna, Oh Arjuna, get up and defeat the inner enemy of desire. In this chapter, Krishna says, get up. The enemy here is samshaya or doubt and that causes the greatest danger and you must slay that doubt. Having the problem is not the problem. Having the problem and to be okay with the problem is the problem, right? So Krishna is saying that having the doubt is not the issue. You must want to resolve it. And all that I am saying, not I, Krishna is saying, is only so that he equips Arjuna. He empowers Arjuna so that he can battle this doubt. And as I said, this we will constantly have this doubt, right? The simplest thing is when we are going through many of Swami's discourses, many of Swami's interactions, one of the things that constantly Swami always says is you should be able to see Swami in everyone. You should be able to see God in everyone, right? That's a mandate literally given to all Sai devotees. Even as we are trying to do that, even as we know that that is the truth, whether we are able to see it or not, Swami is in each person. The life experiences that we go through is going to make us doubt that statement every step of this journey, right? Every time we meet a person who is very unpleasant, or maybe every time we meet a person who is very, very pleasant, we are able to see the stark difference between the person who is pleasant and who is unpleasant, right? So all of these is going to create that doubt. But every time there is a doubt, you have the choice whether you turn to the words of the master whom you can trust or you can turn to the world or the mind which reflects the words of the world, right? So however much the doubt arises, you use this discrimination to say that you know, this is what Swami says, this is what the scriptures say, this is what the Bhagavad Gita says and I am any day better off trusting these words than trusting my own mind, than trusting anybody else's words. Right? So that choice is what is left and Krishna very beautifully says, get up, pick up the sword of discrimination, kill this doubt and then you are ready to go and lit very beautifully in that you know very poetic way he says yogam atishta uttishta bharata hold this yoga take recourse in this yoga and get up and act with that dear listeners probably a beautiful message to end the first episode of 2020 and let's only pray that all of these words as it is meant to be it empowers our discrimination so that every step that we take in this journey is a bold step, is a resolute step, is a focus step towards Swami. With that prayer, I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's lotus feet. Do join me again next week, which will be a summary of the fourth chapter. I don't know if we'll be able to complete the entire summary in one episode. We'll try to do that or if there's a spillover, we'll go as it happens. So with that, dear listeners, I take your leave. I'll meet you all again next week for the resumption of the Gita series A Tryon Pilgrimage. Till then, take care. Once again, a very happy 2020 to each one of you, a holy, prosperous and a fulfilling new year to each one of you listeners. Thank you for being with me all this while and for every step of the journey is pleasurable when I'm having the pleasure of your company. So I once again thank you from the bottom of my heart for this. I'll meet you all again next week. Take care. Jai Sai Ram.